Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Have you ever felt so disconnected from your erotic nature that you've wondered if you were asexual? Do spiritual gurus on Instagram claiming to help you reconnect with your divine feminine energy with their $4,000 course make you want to scream, I wish it was that easy, babe? Have you spent much of your life feeling like you've performed sexuality rather than actually enjoying sex for yourself? Do you sometimes wonder what it even feels like to feel aroused? Have you constantly faked orgasms to make sure your partner feels satisfied while completely neglecting your own needs, leaving you feeling resentful of sex or dreading it as some kind of forced chore? In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Alexandra Solomon, a professor, therapist, speaker, author, and retreat leader who's passionate about translating cutting-edge research and clinical wisdom into practical tools people can use to bring curiosity and authenticity into their relationships through what she calls relational self-awareness. Dr. Solomon is a licensed clinical psychologist on faculty in the School of Education and Social Policy at Northwestern University, where she teaches the internationally renowned course, Building Loving and Lasting Relationships, Marriage 101. In addition to writing articles and chapters for leading academic journals and books in the field of marriage and family, she's the author of two best-selling books, Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back. Dr. Solomon regularly presents to diverse groups that include the United States Military Academy at West Point and Microsoft, and she's frequently asked to talk about relationships with media outlets like The Today Show, Oprah Magazine, The Atlantic, Vogue, and Scientific American. Sadly, Many of us have received messages from our childhood homes, social media, and porn, religion, that sexuality is either completely taboo or some sort of performance that we must take part in to get attention or feel valued. Alexandra and I discuss how we can rediscover what a connection to the erotic looks like for ourselves and how to become more deeply grounded in pleasure with or without a partner. You're entitled to feel good in your body and to define who you are sexually and when and how you want to be touched. According to Alexandra, if everybody could just drop the bullshit, sex becomes an opportunity for something totally different. By listening to our full conversation, you'll see that your sexual relationship should be a playground and space where both you and your chosen partner get to keep learning, growing, being silly, and screwing up. So without further ado, let's dive straight into my conversation with the fabulous and fearless Dr. Alexandra Solomon. You have entered back from the borderline, where we walk willingly into the darkness within our minds and return home to ourselves transformed. I'm your host, Molly. I spent most of my life numbing the pain and emptiness inside me, unaware that my self-sabotaging behaviors and thoughts were destroying my ability to connect with myself and other people. One day, I decided I was sick enough of my own bullshit to hear life calling, telling me it was time for a change, 
and I decided to answer that call. On this podcast, we'll learn that when we see ourselves as the hero of our own journey, it gives us the best chance at finding our inner truth and integrity. Together, we'll learn to hold complex feelings, expand our consciousness and self-awareness while making meaning of our suffering. Are you ready to find out who you are underneath the weight of everything that's been keeping you stuck? If the answer is yes, follow me down the rabbit hole of psychological and spiritual growth. I'm so glad you're here. And with that, let's dive straight in to the episode. Welcome back to the podcast. I am sitting here with Dr. Alexandra Solomon, but I would love to give you a chance to introduce yourself to my listeners. Molly, it's great to be with you. Thank you for inviting me onto your show. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist by training, and my work has always been pretty diverse. I wear a lot of different hats. So some of my week is spent doing therapy with individuals and couples. Some of my week is spent teaching and training. I Right now I'm teaching an undergraduate class called Marriage 101. I've been teaching it every spring quarter at Northwestern University for like 20 years, but I also do quite a bit of training uh, of therapists uh, and clinicians about working with people who are dating, breakups, sex, relational self-awareness. And then I do a lot of translational work. I always have loved taking what is in the ivory tower, academic work and what's behind therapist doors and really exporting it um, into tools that, that people can use in their everyday lives. What would you say is your therapeutic modality? Yeah. I know that your show is called Back from the Borderline. My work is integrative. I spent 10 years training graduate students to be couples therapists, and I would teach them how to do couples therapy. And the model at the Family Institute at Northwestern University, which is where the master's program lives in marriage and family therapy, that model is integrative. It brings together the best of a number of fields and teaches people how to work as deeply as we need to work. But I would say like the heart of what I do is a feminist, an intersectional feminist lens with a lot of psychodynamic stuff. I can't imagine ever sitting down with a couple without starting with their genograms. I have to know where you come from. I have to know your people. I have to know about the original love classroom that you grew up in. I bring in a lot of narrative work in terms of helping people retell the stories of what happened to them. And so I think a point of connection for you and I is that my feminist training, I did undergraduate and graduate degrees in women's studies, was around helping us really be more thoughtful about what we have called borderline personality disorder and understanding it through a lens of trauma, gender role socialization. I love that we now are moving away from even the term borderline and we're calling it complex PTSD because literally within the name is trauma. In the 90s, I remember being at a therapy conference as an undergrad student. So I must have been far enough along that I knew I wanted to be a therapist. And somebody asked the male presenter, where is the line in borderline, right? What does that line mean? And he's like, oh, you know what? Your borderline, my wife, my wife, your borderline. It was like this very flippant, very sexist idea. A lot of times it's ladies being ladies. You know how it is. And it was uh, <laughs> Molly is literally coming out of her skin. Yeah, I was like, for the <laughs> listeners, I'm literally losing my mind right now. And hit the ceiling and is currently climbing back down. But, you know, that's our roots. I'm in my later 40s. Like, it's not like I'm an ancient beast here. 20 plus years ago, that's, you know, our field, the field of mental health is steeped in a lot of problematic 
things around racism, sexism, homosexuality. So my field is a field in recovery and I love where we are now. I'm proud of where we are now, but there's a lot that we are continuing to excavate around how we think about mental health challenges. God, I love everything you just said. What I love so much is that you say that you are in a profession in recovery itself. Mm -hmm. I I just did an episode that I released yesterday called Witches and Borderline Bitches. And it's it's (laughs) talking about the problematic sexist and misogynistic history of psychiatry itself, how it has come from what used to be demonic possession and then hysteria and calling women witches and pathologizing our emotions. Are you saying that the field is going more towards seeing borderline personality disorder, not even as a separate thing from CPTSD? They're actually one in the same. Can you? Oh, yeah. I don't even know if we're using the word borderline, you know, because the diagnostic manual itself has been redesigned. It used to be that there were these five axes and axis one disorders were things like depression and anxiety and phobias, things that we called ego dystonic. They were uncomfortable and people would come in for help. Like, oh, I keep having panic attacks. Help me with my panic attack. Or I am depressed. Help me with my depression. They were ego dystonic. And they were symptoms that developed in an otherwise, quote unquote, healthy person. And then there were access to disorders. And those were the personality disorders. And the idea here is that they were very often ego syntonic, meaning that people would come to therapy either because somebody else was like, dude, you have to go to therapy. People with access to disorders were oftentimes difficult to treat because the problem was everybody. And so it was ego syntonic. Like their symptoms were very much like, no, I have to treat people that way because they are fools or they are suckers or they're not going to play me like that. And so that was a set of personality disorders, one of which was borderline personality disorder, which was a lot of identity instability, a lot of splitting. People are either all good or all bad. And the problem with access to disorders, calling this group of problems like borderline personality disorder, calling it that First of all, insurance companies wouldn't reimburse because they were seen as personality disorders. They were untreatable, unfixable. You couldn't get better. You could just minimize the fallout. And then that shaped clinicians' attitudes going in, right? Because how do you treat something that's been deemed not treatable? And so it shaped the space between clinicians and clients. And so we don't do five access diagnoses anymore. And so those long, long standing disorders kind of live a bit differently. And So now when we call it complex PTSD, we're saying, yes, there are things like splitting. There are things like self-sabotage. There are things like real challenges with boundary issues. And those are all tied to a root, which is trauma. And so there's no point in really like pointing your finger at your client being like, look how you're acting. The point is to connect deeply with the trauma that changed the brain and created a set of coping strategies that perhaps made life back then survivable, but now are getting in the way. So that's the re, there's been a reframing that I think does clients a service by um, helping them understand themselves differently and does clinicians a service by actually giving them tools for how to work effectively. And Marshall Linehan has been huge in this, like, like dialectical behavior therapy has been huge in helping clinicians work differently with quote unquote borderline personality disorder. Absolutely. I think when I 
was even just diagnosed with borderline traits. Yeah. Everybody knows what it's like when you first Google borderline personality disorder. That's not a good day. It's like Googling a chest pain. It's like any kind of pain immediately. Cancer, dying, mm -hmm. right? When I Googled borderline personality disorder and I came across just the inherent message out there that is it's incurable. Human beings, we are so capable of change. We're so dynamic. Telling someone their personality is inherently disordered. It's just so, It to me, it feels wrong. I find that I get people really triggered and in a, all sorts of a tizzy. When I say we're identifying too much with our labels, I follow so many young people and they have in their Instagram bio, ADHD, autistic, BPD, NPD. And I'm going, why are we waving these man-made, yeah. literally man-made <laughs> disorders? Yeah, like there's some kind of pride flag. I understand the pride flag because damn right, be proud of your sexuality. Yeah. But why are we waving our yeah. diagno diagnostic labels as our identity? Oh, I mean, Molly, this is so... It's so complicated and it's so, so, so important that we talk about. So I think one of the issues is that Gen Z was raised by Gen X, right? So, and when we were, you know, so I, my kids are 17 and 19. So in that Gen Z range, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, we were starting to understand, like my mom had a whole bunch of self-help books on her nightstand. It was the era of Phil Donahue, some of the, the first wave of self-help TV shows. So we were starting in the 80s and 90s to talk a little bit about self-help, but therapy still very much back then was pretty stigmatized. So if you're 18, 19, 20, 24, you were raised by people who really still saw therapy as something that was for other people, for crazy people. It is inherent in generational difference that the next generation is going to push back against their parents. When I was in Gen, you know, as a Gen X emerging adult, I was pushing back against my parents' backwards ideas about gender and about sex and da da da, da you know? So I was pushing back against my parents' generation. So I think part of the way that Gen Z pushes back against their parents' generation is F shame about anything. Like we are not doing shame. We are going to live loud and proud, put it all on the table. And if you don't get it, F you. Like it is in some ways an overcorrection. We're not going to be like, you know, just keep your business in the closet and let's make nice. We don't air our dirty laundry. It's like in some ways an overcorrection, I think. And I think it's in part a product of growing up online, self-expression, branding yourself, finding your platform. That's something that if you're 30 and over, you did not grow up like that. You did not think about yourself as a personal brand. You were not curating a feed from when you were 12 years old. That's radically different. So I think in part, all of that, I have to define myself means that we grasp for labels and descriptors. And I think you're right to invite some nuance here because the labels do reduce shame. Announcing your label, it helps us advocate for ourselves. That is really essential for advocacy, for self-definition, for self-determination. I'm here for it. And each of us is so much more than our label. We are a unique expression of the divine. None of us can be captured by any label, not gender, not age, not what generational cohort. None of those descriptors are nearly enough. And so I think part of the journey is maybe you've got to stick yourself with a bunch of labels 
to then get to the point where you're like, oh shit, actually I'm more than any of this. It makes sense to me why it's landing poorly for you or why you're struggling with it, because I think it's an attempt to solve one kind of problem while creating another problem. People are so sensitive about their identity and it makes sense why they are, right? Because that's everything that you are. So if someone challenges something that you believe to be everything you are, then you're going to be upset. And this is what I've been trying to say on Instagram, on my episodes. You are not a personality disorder. Do you run across um, people in my generation, especially women, who are struggling to navigate undoing the damage of sexual grooming and really identifying themselves as this sexual being of what can I give the world? And then finding themselves like I was, suicidal and being like, who am I? Who am I without these hot Instagram filters? Who am I? I feel like I don't exist. What would you say to a young woman struggling with something like that? First of all, thank you for sharing all of that. I think there's so much of it that I I obviously lands with your audience. This is a community that you you have built by sharing your experiences. And your experiences, unfortunately, are all too common. You're naming two really strong ways that your sexuality was something that was given that you understood your sexuality through the messages you internalized, right? Whether it's from the church that you have to be this way and not this way, and there are good girls and there are bad girls and there are right ways and there are wrong ways, or through through the, the male gaze, like learning about how to be desirable. And so both of those are are being sexualized rather than being sexual. And so it sounds like a really important element of your recovery has been learning how to locate your sexuality as inside of you. That is actually something that is an essential part of who you are, your connection to the erotic. This is my whole second book is called Taking Sexy Back, which is really basically what so many girls and women have to do, which is reclaim their sexuality. So in this book, rather than sexy being an adjective that women feel like they have to ask, like, am I sexy with this filter? Am I sexy with this body? Am I sexy with this behavior? Am I sexy? Like it's a question in the book, Taking Sexy Back. We, we turn it into a noun and we capitalize the your sexy, like it is your sexy. The S in sexy is capitalized and it becomes your relationship to this essential part of self, which is your sexuality, which is your connection to the erotic. And the erotic is this realm, this like highly spiritual realm of pleasure and play and sensation and aliveness. There's nothing you have to do to earn the right to feel deeply grounded in pleasure, whether that's with a partner or not with a partner. But sadly, the vast majority of us have to reclaim that. I mean, some of us grow up in homes with parents who give us that message from day one. You are entitled to feeling good in your body. You are entitled to defining who you are and when and how you want to be touched. Some of us grow up in those homes, but lots of us grow up as you did with you know messages from social media, from church that no, actually it's a performance or it's taboo or it's how you get attention and value. And so very often our, we have to do healing work around 
locating our sexuality inside of ourselves. If I'm being honest with you, that's a huge part of my recovery still. And it's something that sure. I haven't managed to crack the code. When I spoke about this openly, I got such a flood of messages from girls. Yeah. I said that I felt almost asexual. Like I'm at a point yeah. in my life where I'm finally with a partner that I love so much. I'm so stable, so happy, but I only knew how to, like you said, perform sexuality yeah. for really toxic men and then to get them closer to me. I only knew sex as a tool to get someone. But then once I got them, got them, however, that's yeah. where we'll put it. Right. No, that's how it feels. Yeah. Once I have them in my life and now he is, I have an incredible partner. I find myself really like feeling that frozen asexual feeling. And then I'm watching all of these. I've heard them referred to as spiritual gurus TM on Instagram. All these women that are like, I'm embodying my femininity. Uh -huh. They are just looking like sexual goddesses. And I'm like, holy shit, I am so far from that. Uh -huh. So what am I? I know that I want to have a relationship with my sexuality, but I feel like there's actually a block. I don't even yeah. have sexual desire right now. And then I feel like I'm depriving my partner from it. I'm so self-aware. I'm doing yep. so much great recovery work yep. everywhere else. But I like to refer to it as an old pipe. I don't know how to unblock. How do we do that? Oh, <laughs> Molly, it brings tears to my eyes. It's just, you're doing it. does me too. I really yeah. feel like oh, yeah. a woman, you know, it makes me really I know. emotional. I know. Yeah. I know. Of course it does. Of course yeah. it does. You are, you know, it in some way, what I one of the things I hope that you will feel is that you get to be here now working on this block only because of what you've done so far. You don't get to do this work until you've done that work, right? And this is hard for you because we are in the early stages of the, the collective, the, the field of mental health is at the very early stages of understanding this. We know We've done a pretty decent job of helping people recover from sexual trauma and make the pain stop. But we are at the very beginning stages of moving from it doesn't hurt anymore. I don't act out anymore to, oh, pleasure. Right. What the fuck is that? Yeah. So, so where you are around like, yes, you're not acting out sexually. Yes, you're not performing to get a partner anymore. Yes, you have allowed yourself to like settle in and receive a healthy relationship. Okay. That really kind of has been the ceiling for mental health. So you're struggling with it because our field is struggling with it. And we now have some amazing pioneers who aren't, you know, spirituality guru TM doing their <laughs> belly dancing on Instagram, which they are which wonderful. Great, by the way, I, yeah, like, like good for them, but it That's makes right. women like me right. in there or people, I, I don't want to just say right. women, but it makes people like me who have these blocks it almost, and it's projection, right? Because I'm going mm -hmm. like, grr, it makes me almost angry seeing that because I'm just like, it's not that easy. Because they're like, just feel into it. And I'm like, dude, right. I, I can't just feel into it. Right. I tried doing the moving around. I've tried, but I, it doesn't, that doesn't yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah. Right. And But what I love is that in you playing with what doesn't work, you are, okay, like checking those things off. And then now you need to find what does work. There's a book called Reclaiming Pleasure. I wrote the foreword for it, Dr. Holly Richmond. She's dynamite and she has been working in recovery from sexual trauma for many years. And it's a really quiet book about embodiment and safety. I mean, the, the work is to stay present, to stay present with sensation rather than dissociating and, and to find little tiny bites, little tiny 
edges. And it may be that some of this work has to happen alone, right? I love the, the, the new era of sex toy companies that are created by women where the sex toys are not what they used to be. Huge, like, phallic, dildo. Huge, right? They are just like <laughs> little, delicate, kind, sexual wellness tools. And so it may be, I think a lot of women, people who are recovering, need to have solo sexual experiences where they really work on staying present to themselves, tolerating sensation, like finding the outer edge of sensation and staying present. What and do that, you mean that, by the outer edge? Can you explain that? That sometimes just feeling good is challenging. Like starting to yeah. feel aroused is challenging. Because either, okay, <laughs> yeah, it feels like a lot to ask you to feel good in your own body with your partner right there, because you're going to be toggling between what am I feeling? Yep. What is he needing? How is yep. he doing? Yep. That's so Do I look much. good right now? Yeah. It's so you much. You know what I'm saying? Right. Do I smell good? Do I right. look good? Is right. this? Is it taking too long? Yes. For me, even with self-pleasure, like I'm big on self-pleasure, actually. That's something I'm okay with, but I'm very much about like, get it done. It's, yep. it's a utility, right? Yep. It's like, get it done. And I know even my partner has explained to me, that's how he feels about it. I watch Married at First Sight, which is just a toxic reality show. But the the experts, quote unquote, give the contestants these intimacy challenges and they say to sit in front of your partner and just make eye contact. Yeah, yeah. That sounds terrifying. Can you describe a little bit more about what you mean about these small bites of intimacy? Mm -hmm. So if that feels terrifying, what would be three steps down from that? Could it be 30 seconds of eye contact? Yeah. Could it be sitting face to face, eyes closed and holding hands and just breathing together? What's the entry level? So if, if eye gaze feels terrifying, how would you back that up? Okay, so eyes are closed, right? But we're together and we're holding hands. We're in a hug. We're staying in a hug and I'm settling. Finding the little practices where you can feel, you can be near him and settled. What you just described, I feel like I could do that. That actually gives me the calm feeling because I'm like, okay, I could do that. I could do sitting there holding hands. Why do you think that's important? And why do you think these small bites that you describe and starting slow why do you think that's important? And then why do you think that that is a foreign concept for us? Yes. The answer to both questions is the same because what has to happen is nothing short of rewiring your nervous system. Your nervous system has been fried. I have every confidence that you, like so many women, have had experiences where you have been expected to override a ton of bodily cues, right? That's the nature of trauma is too much too soon all the things that you had to hold from overwhelming experiences where you had no space to process. No space to process either because there was nobody there or you didn't think you should have to process. There's, there's so much pressure to be sex positive, down for anything and sex goddessy. So I think what happens is in that space of what we do to ourselves and what oftentimes unhealthy men expect us to do means that we override so many cues. The work is then saying to our nervous system, I won't do that anymore. We don't have to do that anymore. We are actually safe now. Oh, beautiful. So many of my listeners that have reached out to me about this same issue, I go to their profiles and they're girls who have OnlyFans accounts. And 
I can relate so deeply to these women because for a while when I was out of work, I was on a sugar baby website. That was my time when I hated men the most because I try to tell girls that um, come to me that have OnlyFans or whatever. I'm like, look, I worked in poker rooms in LA. I did some sugar baby stuff. You see the darkest side of manhood. You see the shadow side of men because they're not going there for good reasons. They're not going to go there to treat you well. They're not going there because they're fully integrated people. You're going to see the darkest side. And these girls that are on OnlyFans, they are saying, I'm, I am sexually liberated and I'm reclaiming my sexuality, except then they come to me and they're like, why do I feel like such shit? And I'm like, well, because you are just getting accosted all day and being treated like an absolute product and i'm not saying there aren't sex workers out there who aren't like like psychiatrists in their mind like dominatrixes who are like the most badass integrated people oh yeah that's a tiny fraction most of these are girls who downloaded OnlyFans. it actually hurts my soul to think of the trauma that is happening and the intimacy blocking shit that's going down. What is your reaction to the OnlyFans phenomenon? Because we have so marginalized and stigmatized sex work, we are depriving ourselves from opportunities to learn from sex workers. Because you're right. When I have studied with sex workers who are deeply integrated, who have their clients read Audre Lorde. See, that's a whole other level. <laughs> it's just next level and it is glorious and it is sacred. Yeah. Work. And so those are the people we need to have mentoring. Anybody By the way, if you know coming. one of those women, I'd love to have them on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 100%. So Dr. Tammy Nelson is mm-hmm. one of the leading sex therapist trainers. I was an attendee at a three-day conference that she did, and she hosted a panel of BIPOC queer sex workers who are either dominatrixes or switches, like doms or subs. And it was like, it was just so... Yeah. So I will. I bet that. that was so, so illuminating. Oh my God. I just sat there and cried. <laughs> just was like, I mean, this is they're holy. This they're is... Doing, yeah. They're doing healing work, mm-hmm. but that is not a 17 year old girl on OnlyFans. No, that's that right. Is, you need to do your own work. I think the other thing that we oftentimes forget is this is a brand new era of how much access we have to pornography, hardcore pornography. Like when I was growing up, which again, is a generation ago. It's not forever ago. Like we maybe knew which dad had a copy of Playboy or Hustler that we could look at for two seconds before we got I remember finding like a sex book in my parents' car and I was like, oh, you know, oh my. And it's so tame compared to what you can see now. Yep. And so when, and and I am not anti-porn, there are some incredible feminist you know, ethical, thoughtful, intimacy-promoting creators of content right now. But that is not the vast majority of what you find on Pornhub. And it's one thing to be 35 and occasionally, you know, masturbating to Pornhub and to be 13 and have this be your first exposure to sex is hardcore, physically violent, a relation, like not just like, you know, sort of anti-relationship content, Mm -hmm. right? That reinforces all kinds of problematic gendered scripts. Sex education in this country, there's so many things wrong with it, but it's not providing any information about how to be a thoughtful consumer of erotic content. So then kids are just left to their own devices, literally their own devices, like having a device in the room at age 12, 
watching this. So of course we are creating the conditions for massive disintegration around sexuality. And of course, so then, so any 17 year old girl who creates an OnlyFans, of course that feels sexually liberating because that's what she has seen on her phone. And that is therefore what the boys and men around her are expecting. It's just, it's just all, it's a, it's a horrible All of it cycle. feeds the next, all feed. it's crazy. Girls are watching porn too, right? Girls are watching Pornhub too. And especially to like quickly masturbate or something, right. you know what I right. mean? It's like a quick one and done, a close friend of mine. She has extreme shame after she did that. She said that she and her partner had sex and then he left and she hadn't finished. And so she quickly went to Pornhub on her phone yeah. and masturbated. And then she messaged me the next day, voice noted me, and she said, I feel so bad. Is that bad of me? I'm so shamed. I feel horrible that I did that. And I just was overwhelmed with feeling like, God, like, of course, that's not bad that you did that. I think that we don't talk about as women enough. What is your reaction to that? Well, my first reaction is what's keeping her from making sure that she's satisfied in her encounter with her partner? Hmm. That's my first thought, because clearly she is able to have an orgasm, right? He leaves the room and she quickly finishes herself off. So what kept her from saying anything, right? Like, this is what I am really needing or lay here while I touch myself, you know, whatever it is. Like she, it's a lot of the work that I do with couples and in my teaching is, especially for heterosexual couples, disrupting that sexual script because the vast majority of things that we call foreplay, the kind of touch that we call foreplay, just to get the bodies warmed up enough, hard enough and wet enough for penetration, all that stuff is the stuff that generally, if you have a vulva, that's the stuff that's going to give you orgasms. So very often women are, whatever kind of touch they are receiving there, they're trying to hold themselves back from having an orgasm because they don't want to come until they're having penetrative sex. But then penetrative sex is not I mean, there's a little bit of us, like 20 or 25% of us who have orgasms from just penetration alone, but most of us really do need manual stimulation, oral stimulation, a wonderful um, tool in the bedroom, a sex toy in the bedroom, all of those things along with our partner's presence and smell and touch, all of that together. But we get so stuck in these scripts and women fake orgasms for all kinds of, you know, reasons. And that's another kind of self-abandonment that will keep us from understanding what actually would feel good. Because again, we've been raised to just be so focused on him, making sure he's okay. And that he thinks that that he's given us, quote unquote, an orgasm. Yes. You care more about giving them the feeling of success and manhood than actually getting pleasure from the act, which I think then makes us kind of dread it, you know? Dread. How can you not? Of course. And of that's course. how I felt for the longest time where I was just like, oh, I don't even want to do this. Like, that's right. but then you get so good at faking it and even like contracting, like you're having an orgasm, right? Like girls can fake it. We're good fakers because you'll yeah. meet guys that are like, no one's ever faked it with me. And you're like, sure, honey. Mm-hmm. Sure. No, we're just really good at faking it. But I love the fact that you describe faking an orgasm as self-abandonment. Why do you describe it in that way? The heart of sexism or the heart of patriarchy is this idea that men have to be constantly validated, affirmed, winning. It's just this like collective fear of speaking truth to men. And we've been doing that since we were little girls in all kinds of ways, long before we've even 
been sexual with somebody. So we bring that risk in. And then what it says to a man is you actually can't handle the truth. This is what you need. You need to be lied to because you are so fragile and that doesn't do men any good at all. So a woman who's faking her orgasms is very likely to then be hypersensitive about any kind of accommodation her partner is asking her to make because there's this deep truth she carries, which is I, I am lying to you all the time. I am accommodating you in ways that you actually don't even know about. So I'm very sensitive to, no, I'm not taking your mom out to lunch because I've done so much for you. But he doesn't even know that she's doing so much for him, taking her orgasms. I want to be respectful of your time. I want to finish off. (laughs) Ha ha. Do you like that? (laughs) Since you do so much work with couples, I'd like to give something for the, my non-female listeners as well. But for, for the female listeners, say for instance, they are in this position where they are feeling, I've had this conversation with my partner. He knows exactly where I stand with my journey and my sexuality. But say, for instance, you are in the position of my friend who I just mentioned, where she's terrified to tell her partner that he isn't pleasing her. She doesn't feel like she's getting what she needs. And maybe their partner has a bit of a fragile male ego. How can a woman go about starting this conversation What advice would you give about just the baby step of how can you approach your partner without triggering them? Right. When I was writing my um, Taking Sexy Back, it was what I and my team spent the most time talking about. We wrote a chapter of that book for a man whose partner is taking her sexy back. So I'll be leaving this in the show. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is, and it's got language and suggestions. So what I want the positioning to be is the two of us, a woman and her boyfriend or her husband, the two of us looking together at this problem, which is that patriarchy has fucked both of us, you know? Yes. That's the problem. It's not that you did anything wrong. It's not that I did anything wrong. I didn't betray you. You didn't abandon me. Neither of us came into this relationship with the tools and the language and the skills that we need. And we have the right to be lifelong learners and we deserve to have our sexual relationship be a playground and to be a space where we get to keep learning and growing and being silly and screwing up. When you and I go in the bedroom, I want to just be fully there with you. And I am learning how to do that. So that's the positioning is she's not coming to him to accuse him, to blame him. She's also not coming to him with a mea culpa, like I'm awful and I've been lying to you. It's that framing of shoulder to shoulder looking together at the problem and the opportunity. I love that. And regardless of gender or sexuality, I think that's a beautiful thing for any couple to do. How can we shed the bullshit that society has told us, shed the scripts, and how can we find out what intimacy means for us? And what he might exhale and say, oh, thank God, because I take a Viagra because I am scared to death of losing my erection. And you thinking I'm not man enough. And then she could be like, are you kidding me? I don't give a shit about your erection. Go down on me. Whatever it is. Like her fear is faking an orgasm is the ultimate betrayal. And his fear is that if she ever knew how scared he was, lose his erection. So I think that's also helpful for women because part of what male socialization is, is I can't be vulnerable. I have to be a leader. She thinks that then there's not stuff under the surface, but I guarantee that there's so much under the surface for every man too. Fear of being a disappointment, fear of her comparing 
him to other lovers, all this kind of stuff that if everybody, as you said, can just drop the bullshit, sex becomes an opportunity, right? Yes. It's different. I love that. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate having you here. And I know my listeners are going to take so much from this conversation. There's not enough talk about any of the things that we just discussed today. But as you said, things are changing. We're we're moving towards a brighter future. And I'm so excited that there are people like you out there doing the research and the work. And I'm going to link to all of your books. What's next for Dr. Alexandra Solomon? What are you working on now? The last thing about the sort of what you were saying about this being an exciting time, I think once a couple gets on the same page that we're going to do some sexual healing together, they've got so many places to go. There are so many amazing teachers about sexuality, so many resources and bringing in all of those Oh, resources. Yeah. Is so, favorite. I love, I mean, Emily Nagoski has got Come As You Are. I love the Pleasure Mechanics, have a podcast and so many resources. They are wonderful. Those are two like right off the top of my head. I have on my website, my like 10 to 15 favorite books about sex. So there's things you can read, things you can listen to. There's just no shortage of the whole world of, ta- you know, Tantra. And we mentioned Dr. Holly Richmond's book. So there's so many wonderful, wholehearted resources. So once that first threshold has been crossed, the world is your oyster and there's so many places to go. The, the best place for people to learn more about me and connect with me is on my website, dralexandrasolomon.com. And I'm active on Instagram. I've got books and e-courses and a podcast called Reimagining Love, which has been so much fun. And we have a, quite a few episodes about sex. The idea of just bringing in something to listen to together, this, this episode will be lovely for your listeners to bring to a partner. I think triangulating in something like that can make the conversation easier. Amazing. I did an interview with my boyfriend and just hearing two people talk to each other. I had so many people reach out and say, I listened to this with my partner, bringing resources in and especially with men, letting them hear other men talk. That's just so good because they're like, oh, okay, I can talk. So bring it in, play this episode with your partner and then dive into Alexandra's work, which I'll be linking in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here with me today. You're welcome, Molly. It was great. Did you love this episode and want an even deeper dive into healing sexual trauma? This was just a teaser. This week, my premium subscribers will be getting an extra long and juicy episode digging into these topics and more. We'll be discussing compulsive sexual behavior, the connection between personality disorder diagnoses and sex, sex as self-harm, survival sex, and a lot more on OnlyFans and sugar daddies. If you're not already a subscriber, what are you waiting for? Visit backfromtheborderline.com and click premium content. Once you've subscribed, you'll unlock access to my private RSS feed where I'll be dropping multiple deep dive episodes per week that you can binge your heart out on, honey. And if you aren't quite ready to subscribe, I'd love it if you can rate or review the podcast on your podcatcher of choice. It really helps me out a lot. Last but not least, don't forget to check out the episode description for links to all the resources Dr. Solomon mentioned on today's episode. All right, that's it from me, my friends. I hope the rest of your day or night is full of healing and feeling. I love you.
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.